Um, it was the Severance. So John Severin in Cracked Magazine, because mm. I was reading Mad and Cracked, and at some point, like John Severin was dominating Cracked, and I was coming, but I was coming from like humor, reading humor comics long before superhero, and then Marie Severin, who did even cheesier work, which was the Star Comics work. But that's like the beginning of me reading comics was like Star Comics and Cracked Magazine. See, that makes me look cooler because I didn't. I got into Bushemo yeah, stuff when I was no, when I got into Bushemo when I was twenty four. <laughs> oh. I mean, I was, I was, you know. I'm talking like age ten or eleven yeah. or something like. that. I mean, that. I had Elf Quest and you know, I was, I, I had, I was buying Poison Elves religiously and everything. So you know, <laughs> is that like Elf porn? It's like uh, heavy much. metal porn. Okay. No, heavy metal elves. It's sorry. like if Dave Sim did an Elf comic. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, he's really Didn't the woman who drew that go to shows in Barbarian Bikini oh, where... Oh, yeah, she... she, she before, right, before yeah. she did... Uh, she would go with Frank Thorne because he had all the Red Sonias that would dress up. That, I've seen... Yeah, I've seen Have photographs. you seen the Frank Thorne comic book about it? No. He did a comic book where he drew himself as a wizard and then he drew all of the uh, all of the Red Sonia cosplayers in it too. It's a really fun comic. That was a crazy era in comics, the 70s and 80s. They were swinging crowd. He was a wizard. Like when you first started in the comic scene, was it still the residue of that weird swinger crowd? <laughs> no, our the first uh, major show we went to was WonderCon in '90, and then our first Comic Con in San Diego was in the building before the one it's in now. So '91 is when they moved to the big convention center. Okay. So, uh, but I met that first. 
uh, um, the first Comic-Con in the older building. It's when I met the Hernandez brothers for the first time. It's when I met Harvey Kurtzman. Um, so that's so not dopey it, at all. it was very memorable. The Tundra days were probably pretty crazy. Yeah. That was the first time I felt tr I was treated like maybe my work was worth something or that I had some kind of potential. And just seeing a marketing plan roll out with my stuff. So that, and as we were talking earlier, me and Al Columbia were at, at all these events together, and so we got close and, and uh, like, you know, brothers starting this. I want to interrupt Mike because your original question, it's actually Mike's work that got me back into comics. After falling out of love with the medium for, you know, all of high school, you know, and wanting to put away all those real nerdy elements of childhood. It was like Madman's the first thing that I stumbled upon that like rekindled an interest. What do you think it was about Madman in particular? Um, yeah, Craig. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> the same stuff. That it just it it seemed out outside of that sort of like it's still like touching on the same sort of nerd nerd points that that resonate with you as a child, but like it's it's more sophisticated and it's more like post adolescent. It's more like, um, what, what age uh, were you so I would have been like 18, probably just finishing high school, just out of high school. I had a friend throughout high school that I was close with that would occasionally drag me to comic shops and it was a painful thing. Uh -huh. And, and sometimes I'd read a book, like I'd, I remember reading Dark Knight cause he had it and stuff, but they didn't really grab me in a way of like, I want to read comics again or start collecting them. Um, and Mad Men was the first thing that, that. But yeah, it was something that, like it was more, and I guess the spiritual element of it too. It just seemed far more sophisticated. So it was drawing on all those, those like sort of subconscious cues that that I still shared. But it was it was uh, reaching out to farther, you know, exploring deeper things. Well, I'm curious. It, about emotional resonance with it. So. I remember you telling me, because I inked with a brush, that that was something that attracted you. But I didn't know it was deeper than. I guess that. yeah, as I got more into the craft of comics. Mm. Because then I was like, I want to make them, and I had to start looking at tools and stuff. I definitely right away was like, I want to do the brush thing. For yourself, starting Mad Mad at that point, it is, it's kind of a very personal comic in the guise of being within the superhero tropes. Um, what were some of your ideas going into it, creating it? Um, I was flailing. <laughs> um, I... I was a TV reporter in Europe and did not enjoy that. I liked being in Europe, but not the job or the circumstances. And so I just, I always drew for fun my whole life. But Steve Siegel, uh, who I had met in Colorado when I taught at the Air Force Academy, um, got me, he, he talked me into taking a screenplay I was writing and drawing it. And that was my first graphic novel, Dead Air. But, um, and he was seminal in the same time period where he and a good friend of mine were reintroducing me to comics, which I had abandoned since I was going into puberty. The exact comic that made me stop buying comics were when Gwen Stacy died in Spider-Man. I was like, that's it, I'm out of here. That devastated me. But when Steve got me this gig, uh, it was a 12-issue contract, uh, uh, a series called Jaguar Stories. That gave me the confidence to just pull up 
stakes and move back to the states and work on that for a living. I knew I had a year to do comics. Company was Kamiko with Chapter Eleven, and it was really more like five months. And so I was flailing, and I, and my own stuff was kind of like whatever came to mind. I just drew and graphic, graphic music, graphic music, um, just mixing um, film noir characters with science fiction characters and horror movie characters, and then because um, our kids were uh, becoming school age. I wanted to tap into what I loved when I was their age because when their friends came over and they said, oh, dad draws comic books, I didn't really have anything to show them that the kids would be excited about. And my favorite character at the time was Frank Einstein, who was kind of a modern Frankenstein, but kind of a regular guy. I simply threw a costume on him and called him Madman. I actually called him the Spook. I was told we couldn't use that name. So we called him the goon, and then um, I was reading Catcher in the Rye, and Madman is used as an expression throughout. And so I thought, well, what about Madman? And um, talked to the Kevin Eastman and the folks at Tundra, and they were like, yeah, we can do that. And so it became Madman. And so it, there was really nothing focused. It was very stream of consciousness. Like just uh, if there was one key influence, it would have been Tintin. I wanted to do self-contained adventures, but what happened in those adventures and what happened between point A and point B was just whatever just kind of came to mind and it just spilled out. And so the personal elements are be, are there because of that. That became a habit that I had a story I wanted to tell, I had a plot, but then all of the relationships and things happening in between were just kind of, what am I feeling right now? What am I questioning right now? And a That's lot of why what it ifs. feels so vital. Is it feels very personal, and yeah, like you're really exposing, you know, I thought yourself it would, through it. I uh, said I wasn't. I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing early on. In fact, I was a little embarrassed about it at first, and um, now it's just the natural way to approach it, uh, as opposed to other projects I'll work on with with Frank Einstein. Particularly, um, I can communicate things through him and I've I've given myself permission to let it be personal when before I thought oh I shouldn't do that it's too personal or people don't they're not they'll make fun of me <laughs> you know and so uh it, it, very sensitive about it and um now I'm not you know I was I was thinking you guys are both talking about um kind of getting away from like liking comics as a kid and then kind of getting away from them and then having to have something to kind of bring you back in and it's just a very different experience than what I had because I kind of I had identified as a comic book artist. I was actually when we were driving to town. I was I used to live in Eugene when I was a kid, and I, I was really? thinking that this was this is the I think this is the place where I decided I was going to do comics for a living. Really, I was like eight or seven, and so it's really surreal. And I haven't really been back here since then. So, w but what what did your dad do that you lived here or your folks? What? Oh, my my parents had just broken up, and my mom had moved here to start going to nursing school. Oh, and so. Or, or maybe it was before she was in for, so school. for schooling then that's why you were yeah in. I lived across the street from Whitaker Elementary here I don't know if that oh, okay. exists but <clears throat> and it does not about comics at all I keep I keep telling everyone about how when I was a kid my, my parents wouldn't let me have you know like candy or, or or sugar or anything so I was given my candy I would have crystallized honey and halva all the time so I always associate <laughs> those things with my childhood and then I'm like horrible hippie parents 
But, that um, reminds me of the really cheesy 80s movie, The Explorers. Yeah. River Phoenix's family, they sit around eating alva. Oh, yeah. Or something like that. I, I totally like screwed up my point I was going for, though. I was wondering if if there's something... I wonder if But that's... you said you always... Comic books were just... It was a part... You identified yourself. Yeah. Where did you get your comics when you well, were a kid? I have both of my both of my parents read comics. But did they get them at the grocery store? Oh, yeah, there's a comic store here. That's the, pretty the, huge. The first comic book store... Comics, the first comic shop in Oregon was here. Daryl Grimes, who owns... Uh, started Emerald City Comics mm. and Nostalgia Collectibles. Yeah, first, first comic book store in uh, Oregon. Huh. Where's the Simpsons comic book store owner guy come from? Simpsons? There, no, there's no reference. Here in Eugene? Yeah. Oh, Matt Groening. He, well, he lived here. And okay. I mean, um, Springfield, which is connected. Okay. We're in Shelbyville right now. That's oh. in Eugene. Wow. We're, you know, Shelbyville's the uppity. Okay. So Springfield is Springfield. And, if, and of course, Portland, you know. The streets. Yeah. A lot of the characters are are named after Portland streets. But there's no reference to the comic store here. Mm, Not really. If you go to Emerald City, a lot of people think Stu at Emerald City Comics is the comic book guy. Oh. I don't think he's flattered by that, but (laughs) he's a great guy. Sorry to get us off track. There. (laughs) I just heard the uh, said that uh, Mr. Burns is based on Charles Burns. Yes. Charles Montgomery Burns. Yeah. And they're old buddies from Evergreens. Yeah. <clears throat> but I was I was wondering if there was kind of <clears throat> I wonder we're in Barcelona comments. with Chuck. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and does he? <laughs> he looks. Yeah, he does yeah, this. Excellent. Uh, uh, I was wondering if that it's got to be because it it seems like a lot of comic artists whose work kind of resonates with people outside of comics. They probably had to go outside of comics for a while before they kind of got that spark to bring them back in to actually want to make comics. Again. I'm glad. Yeah, I, I think it's healthy. Right. Because sure. I mean, I definitely like both of your work is definitely something you can show to people who don't who read, don't read comics and, and get them into comics. For me, it's a uh, rock and roll element. The, um, I replaced my, my allowance, instead of being spent on comic books, started getting spent on record albums. Interesting. And my newspaper route money. So do you think it's, it's a comics albums. plus something? Yeah, I, I, think I, so. I did graffiti for a long time, so I'm kind of comics plus graffiti. And do you have a, do you have a, is there anything specific like that for you, Craig? Not, not, not really. I mean, in high school I was skateboarding but I was never proficient at that. I did try music for a while, and uh, and then when I started to get interested in drawing, it was through animation. So I was really obsessed with animation through most right. of high school. So it's, you know, I was still interested in cartooning. What kind of music? I got were you back into cartooning. It's just like comic books. Seemed what? What kind of music were you trying to do? Oh, just pathetic grunge, you know, so Generation X sort of stuff. Like bedroom, G-Man. yeah, yeah, like you know. Again, I wasn't proficient at any of these things. Right. I think I, I, I devoted a lot of energy in high school to things that that were pleasurable but i was bad at hmm. so and then it, you know also I, I i think i've only wanted to be a comic book artist but in high school i really didn't want to do anything i was really in the gen x mode if like i want to live in a van and not have a job and you know i, I, hate I, the I didn't even ever contemplate that somebody actually made them <laughs> that it was that it was a profession it uh even though i'd always drawn art was always a part of my life um yeah, it, is, it was my older brother that finally started instructing me that, oh, this is Jack Kirby, you know, and, and um, this is Alex Toth. So I started putting, oh, Alex Toth created Space Ghost, and I watched that. And it's funny, I had the total backwards thing of that. And it's, maybe it's like your generation kind of pushing more of the creator, but it was just like, 
I, I, I had this idea of like, you know, I'll, I'll make a living doing comics and it's not a big deal. Like I dropped out of high school to do comics and then the reality hits you and you're just like, oh, this isn't an easy thing to live off of. Well, I never even considered it. I'd already had, uh, you know, a wife and kids before I even thought I might be able to do this. And it, and it was the rock and roll connection where I thought it could become possible, that it was possible. Mm -hmm. Because when I was reintroduced to comics, it was my friend who gave me uh, Mr. X which looked, it had the, the graphics of a, of a record album. Right. You know, it was color, cover to cover, even the inside covers had these, this open spread. It was just beautifully designed. And then at the same period, I was being introduced to comics through The Dark Knight Returns, mm -hmm. which was the first time I ever saw a comic book that was in a nice uh, square bound, you know, format. Right. And even before they collected it as the what it is the graphic novel it is now but you know those four individual comics were so the paper was nice uh watchmen was i think it had like four issues to go right so that's exactly the time period when did, did when you i get had in these comics at the right me. time though in the 90s when there was still enough of an energy around those projects that like people could make a career because if you had a wife and kids that's quite different from us where we were kind of coming from no it, it was actually uh, Mr. X was was crucial because um, that's how I was introduced to the, the Hernandez brothers. And that introduced me to Love and Rockets, which was a black and white book, um, relatively inexpensive to produce. And anything that they wanted to have happen could happen in Love and Rockets. That just the, the variety of stories and, and styles and... Um, I think Mario is underrated. It's I think it's unfortunate he didn't continue on like Beto and and Jaime, but um, they're what, what so did good. So do? Do? I think construction and stuff. Okay, well, like um, most art school graduates, it's <laughs> but I knew that they did that for a living. I I knew that they lived relatively inexpensively and could live off making comics, mm -hmm. and so I thought, well, okay, that's it. If that if I could at least do that. Or, and then even have the kind of success of a Frank Miller or an Alan Moore. Right. There was, I, I was educating myself that there was a potential to, to have a lucrative profession in comics. Mm -hmm. And so when Laura saw that the money I was going to make off this uh, Jaguar story series for Kamiko with Steve Siegel, it was enough that she was willing to take the risk with me. Yes. So, but I, in the meantime, I started drawing comics with that rock and roll energy and attitude. Let's just do it. Just yeah. here's a story. Think, I'll draw it. But again, I think Mike's work has this like perfect blend of these sort of like pop culture, sugar coated sort of sensibilities with something. Uh, really raw and sort of personal at the core. That was really appealing to me. Yeah, I wanted to. And that's what chunky rice ever, ever yeah. hit you really. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Like, it's like and, you and Jamie Hill and Paul Pope seem very much in that kind of comic book rock and roll. And Mobius with the heavy metal thing, and oh, yeah. and Daniel Torres, and um, and yeah, Hernandez Brothers are certainly Chester Brown. Boy, Chester Yummy Fur was rock and roll. That that was just insane, and that, that's where I feel I had the license to um, do more stream of consciousness stuff and not edit myself. And just, it entertains me, so I'm going to draw it. And um, so I, my reintroduction, reintroduction to comics was a no-rules attitude. That's that rock and roll. Just, you're feeling it, record it. Right. 
And so that's where I came from. And just I beyond that, it, luck, luck, luck. Just the re, meeting the right people at the right time. After Steve Siegel, the next comic book creator I met was Will Eisner in Germany. Right, just at a bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> he was over there promoting uh, this documentary, Comic Book Confidential. I went to the movie theater. He was going to do a signing at a shop. And the shop sent me to the movie theater so I could get one of the posters, which was really cool, all the different characters on it. Will and his wife were just sitting there, bored to tears, uh, nobody to talk to. We came in asking for a poster. He saw that we spoke English, and he jumped up to talk to us. It was like, you're Will Eisner. And he followed my career after that. I, every time I would see him, because Dead Air hadn't even come out, I showed him my Dead Air pages, and he ravaged them. Uh, they were, I was inking with the Rapidiograph. I like Dead Air. I mean, how do you feel about Rapidographs, though, Craig? <laughs> Uh, I did we talk about that? I've never tried ever. one. They're nasty. I, you just run your hand over it, and then the, your page is ruined. What a oh, waste of like money! Like this, they're so expensive, and they break down. You'd have to yeah, take them apart and clean them. And just uh, the idea of technical pen is yeah. unappealing. So oh, that—that's like why I went with a brush because it was like, you know, you can't go wrong. It's the list of juicy like mechanical juicy. pencil. It just juicy. Like it's a future pencil. <laughs> with with pens, I, I now. It, can use a pen a little bit because uh, uh, Dharma Cook turned me on to the pit pens. Okay. Those are great. Really nice, rich black. Okay. And uh, they're, for a pen, they're pretty juicy. Okay. I just still use Pigmas because um, an artist I liked who was doing like Ninja High School backup comics when I was a teenager <laughs> just talked about how much he loved them and I just got so used to using them that like, like why, why switch? I like the... Whenever I've tried to use like a nib, I can't handle the scratchiness of it. Yeah. So like fluidity of a, of a brush. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's that herky jerkiness and and yeah, brush is like. One thing I was yeah, I want to do samurai sword. Let's do it together. You know, when I was like first starting to get published, was like you know Pope was around, and it was like if I if I use a brush because I have so many of the same influences as him, I'm just gonna look like. Drawing like Pope. You wish. Yeah. <laughs> no. Pope ejaculates the ink on the page. Oh, but the, his secret is, is that he, how it works? he works so <laughs> huge. Yeah. His pages are monstrous, so he can kind of just go crazy in there, and then when and it's a miracle that how well they they. I know, and he he does work kind of in a rock and roll way because it kind of well, tends off, to right? stand up a lot and have that big space to work on. It's you a know, sexier way to work Marianne on a page. Marianne almost like with her pages almost flat on a desk. So it's like a painter. Yeah, it's, that's and it's really fun to work that way. It's like, oh, I feel like an artist all of a sudden. <laughs> Blutch, who I'm obsessed with, I think maybe we all are. The French cartoonist Blutch, like Blutch. has two modes where he goes back. Is that how you say his name? Uh, I don't know. Don't ask me. Yeah, I, Blutch. I, I, I was calling him Jerkface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has two modes of working where he switches back and forth. When he's working at the desk, he's working on a tiny little paper and just like, like hunched over like that. And then he gets up for a bit and works on the easel on like pastel drawings and stuff he's just going back and forth I, I haven't worked on an easel since college yeah I have one I just don't <laughs> work on it it's very poetic, it's poetic. Yeah, I, I, I worked the way I did in junior high school like this yeah I kind of do too <laughs> with my tongue guiding the brush <laughs> and making me like <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly because that's a big deal that I have if, if a line has to be perfect, you have to make the noise. Yes! It's, it's ridiculous. That's how, you, that's how you come up with the sound effect. Yeah, totally. The I, already, I certainly Starts with a P or a B. <laughs> I mean, I was, when, I, when I was drawing porn comics, there were sound effects. Like, when I was drawing girls' butt, there would be sound effects I'd make. Where like, What's that? <laughs> Say it again? It'd just be like... 
but it was just it was just and it was unconscious and it was one of those things where you're drawing around people and my friends would be like, you're a weird dude <laughs> oh i need to be alone guys <laughs> the sexiest you are drawing ever <laughs> yes i agree <laughs> this is dangerous putting cartoonists yeah. together. Sometimes. Sometimes it's most awkward quietness. We can get there. We can, we can play we'll, that for a while. We'll, we'll get there. Um, I'm going way back to the beginning when you mentioned about how kind of with Mad Men you're kind of flailing and kind of jumping in. Um, but it's also the other part is that it's a change in your life. Like it represents a huge change. And I kind of feel that second part of the change is what Goodbye Chunky Rice was for you. A change in my life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pure emotional like motivation in terms of moving out here to Oregon <clears throat> and and uh, and just mourning the loss of my friends, you know? So it, was, it came from a very... And at that point in my life, like all the comics I drew were gifts. So I would draw pages and then give them to friends. And so most of the first pages drawn of Chunky Rice were immediately mailed to friends I missed. So I had this very pure intent behind it. I'm finally working on that mode again where like the book I'm working on, I realize it's just kind of a gift for like two friends. And I think it's a pure place to come from. But yeah, so... In in Bombo Day books, he signs some of his his pages, they'll be like, to someone. And it's kind of nice. And they keep that on the page? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I like that too. How do you keep your work from being too kind of getting too stuck in it, too stuck in the preciousness of creating artwork. Well, we were talking about deadlines before, and they're a really nice thing to, to, to force you to do what you... Because, I mean, it definitely... I think it hurts the work to sit there and noodle it too much. And so you want to be like... You're like, like I'm, I'm way too... I, my idea of self is really mired in the idea that I'm incredibly unproductive, and so it creates this this thing where every day I'm just like shit what did I do today I gotta work and then it makes me kind of productive because I think of myself as so unproductive well I think that, that I'm confused by the question because there's a couple forms of preciousness Once, one there's like the sentimentality that sort of emerges in work that is emotional but then there's precious attitudes towards how art is constructed and I think if you're making a actually making a book you let go of that preciousness like the most precious people are the people that just dream up books but never make them because that's when they're the most sort of unsoiled and they can be precious. Like, oh yeah, I have this book, I'm this graphic novel I'm going to make someday or I'm dreaming of. It's easy to be the dreamer part, but then when you have to sit down and do the work, it's like working class, like punching the clock, mowing the lawn. It's just, you know, the preciousness dissipates and it becomes... A, I told you my lawnmower thing I always think about. No, you think about mowing the lawn when you're what, making what, comics? When I was a, I had <laughs> a, what sound effects do you make when you're... Yeah. <laughs> I, when I was a kid, I had, uh, I had this big, ugly, <clears throat> rusted push mower that we used to mow the lawn with. And, um, and it feels like, when I'm rusty drawing, it feels like um, the equivalent of having to start this like push mower and it not moving at all. And then once you're really excited and the work's going well, it feels like when the weight of the push mower is kind of pulling you along by itself. And I just I did something that kind of feels like making comics for me. Hey, I love it. Hmm. I love it. Well, we were talking about influences that got us going. Um, I'm constantly looking for uh, influences that re-inspire me. You guys have been huge for that. So uh, I am like, oh, this guy's, you know, when I see an artist, it's just really feeling it. And and, and, yeah, it gets me excited. Um, 
But when I was coming into the business, one of the first people I, I met and became friends with it, you know, we, you, one of the things I love about the business is you go to these shows and you meet the people that are doing what you do right. and love the same things that you love. Mark Schultz was uh, one of these first guys I met and talking about preciousness where it would take him years to do a single, you know, comic book with Xenozoic Tales. And I, I recognized that, okay, I'm never going to be that good. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in that lush, perfect, you know, where everything is perfect, every line is perfect. And so I, as an example, made a conscious decision, okay, I'm not gonna go that route. And so I looked for influences that were more spontaneous and and I became attracted to artists, some from my childhood, like Alex Toth, who's just very right. quick and spontaneous and just one simple line here and one simple line there. And so um, it, to let go of that preciousness, to be spontaneous, again, with that whole musical kind of just get the note, their notes, just yeah, and on get the them music down there. Edge and sort of the history of comics. I mean, I was coming into comics in the 90s with the DIY sort of zine mini comics thing, which again is just about punk rock sort of you don't need to have any of the skills you just want to tell stories so like tom hart is, is one of my first massive influences with hutch owen working hard the express and then joe Chapetta with silly daddy and both those books are on, like on a craft level slightly crude but they're like so potent and powerful expressive and some, yeah. it's just when you were talking about, about kind of uh, artists that kind of get stuff done i was thinking about the mobius adena cycle and when he talked about how he's paring his style down that's another example that guy it just spills on onto the Ooh. page. Yeah, Mobius. Oh, like it's his Dylan Atten stuff. Who's this? And it's just like, I, like that one was so huge to me when I was a kid. And so it's like my my highest aspirations were guys that were a lot of times very like that and a lot of manga, just very simple and very. So it's like, but he's a like, master though. Like that that is intimidating though because it seems like he can. He's yeah, a virtuoso. He never, like yeah. he never convinces you of the idea that I mean, even in reading about his work where he talks about. You know, like in the Adena cycle, he talks about how it's supposed to be seven pages and he was going to pencil it and someone else was going to ink it. And then he has these ridiculous things where he's like, and then in a daze, I just started drawing. And when a daze, I looked up, I had 40 finished pages. You know, I woke up and all my clothes were on fire. <laughs> but also, you'll see his style change from page to page yeah, as you look through that stuff. Yeah, himself kind of draw how he's drawing. Which yeah, and it feels natural. It's not distracting when the style changes. It actually it has this... At that same time period when, you know, I, I was exposed to comics as an adult... Um, Marvel Epic was releasing those uh, Mobius books and so um, when Upon a Star came out that first Epic edition that lit me up I would that just was so simple so pure it, it attracted me to that clean line, line style right. and that's actually what then brought me back to like Hergé with Tintin and, mm-hmm. and Yves Chaland and uh, Daniel Torres and those uh, European influences but um You'll have examples of those guys that where they do treat it preciously and like the architecture is perfect and, and stiff and rigid. Right. And then there's the other guys that it just looks like, whoosh, you know, just very expressive and it just, it's there. And so you can look at a, a piece of work and go, oh, this is brilliant. It must have taken them a month to do this page. And th- right. this is brilliant. It looks like it took five minutes to do well, this It's great page. when those are in the same book. I love that kind of ebb and flow of just like, you know, here's this like, it's like 
it's like not it's you know it's like music again to always bring it back to that but where it's like you have just where it's not just the same tone the entire time it's like some pages are a ton of work and the other pages are just very simple and it's like music and like film where it's not it's not the budget it's not you know it, it's what does it make you feel what yeah. what does it do for you and again this whole new no rules attitude whether it's independent film or indie comics mm -hmm. or indie music it's it's that uniqueness it does it touch you does right. it does it connect with you and i used to always think that it was funny in, in like the 90s when the biggest budget comics were bringing the most money they always felt kind of like bad b movies like a lot of the image stuff back then and i remember thinking like i remember being like 22 and being like i want to do a big budget comic and <laughs> like akira how it's just you know i mean technically just like otomo and maybe one assistant or two sitting there and just like wiggling their pens so was it really that small of a crew it, well it's one of those things where it's like how do you find guys that are as good as that can keep up with you you know okay like even like I remember reading an interview. I'm not into Ruto fan or anything, but I remember reading an interview with that guy where he has a ton of assistants, but there's only one other guy that can even draw the characters. Otomo? No, the Naruto artist. I'm not sure oh. his name. Okay. But it's just, um, yeah. I mean, you know, who's who's kind of in sync with you in that? I don't play well with others. Yeah, I, I, I'm starting. <laughs> I'm starting to learn to. But it's, That's why it's, I'm a comic book artist. But you have collaborated a lot. I, I'm kidding. I love collaborations. Okay. Every collaboration, um, whether it's making a film or making music or, or collaborating on comics, it always stretches me. It inspires me. I like getting into other people's heads. Mm -hmm. I like uh, that's where I stretch and grow. Rather, I think I would probably just be very rigid in, if I just stayed with my own little, little world um, because that's what I naturally am inclined to do. If, if I... If I had, I would, I would just live in this little room if I was allowed to. <laughs> I would just. It's a good life. Yeah, I, I, it's that is my natural inclination to just be isolated and reclusive, and um, so I know it's a healthy thing to play with others, and so I, I had to make myself do that. And now I enjoy. Were you it. like that as a child? Were you the kid that just went off in the corner and you know? No. Okay. No, I it, it as kind of as an adult, I um, I think with getting a job and having kids, um, when you get home, that's where you want to be. Mm -hmm. You you want that's where that's where you relax. That's where you get to read and watch and listen to the things you want to, mm -hmm. and so that became my paradise. And when um, I was fortunate enough to do comics and be able to do it full time and make a living at it I stayed home mm -hmm. and or you know I'd go out you know I'd ride my bike to the movies or, or the comic shop but then I'd go home because that's where the fun was yeah, there's something fantastic about kind of getting what you want and then you're like this is what I wanted this is what I was fighting for like why would I I'm, I'm not interested in leaving my desk yeah well this my previous career was painful and so whenever I'm thinking uh, forget it. I'm. Uh, I, all I have to do is remind myself how hard I had to work at something I didn't want to work at. Mm -hmm. So I'll work that hard on something that I love doing, right. and that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. And it's also, and then having collaborated and stretched out this way, I know the rewards in it. I know the thrill in it. And so even though I may not want to leave the house, I know that it'll be a good thing. I force myself, and then I'm glad that I did it. Mm -hmm. Well, something I was thinking of that a friend of mine, um, an idea a friend of mine had is when you're 
the kind of energy you have when it, I was talking to Craig about this the other day, the kind of energy you have when you're a teenager and it's just about the excitement and everything about, you know, I'm going to draw robots and how just at different points in your life, you have to kind of find, it's like, you know, finding different, um, different types of fuel to, to, to run you and, and different, uh, like I'm really, I've started to really enjoy the monotony sometimes. Like I'll be like, I want to put on something. I'm going to, I'm going to put on some, some music. I'm not particularly going to pay that much attention to, and I'm going to sit down and make lines. And it's not like, it's not about enthusiasm. It's about comfort sometimes. Like, just the joy of comfort. It's hard to explain, but I don't know. If you, have you had to switch up? Both of you had to kind of switch up your your fuel? Oh, yeah. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. Because like, it changed dramatically where you just don't work the way you used to? In the no. I just naturally am refueling myself with pop culture. Mm. It's, it's what I feed on normally. I'm always looking, even if it's a magazine that'll have an interesting right. article in it. Um, you know, um, with music, I'm, that's the place where I'm like, I'm constantly looking for new film experiences and new filmmakers, but with music, that's where I'm the least exploratory. I kind of, uh, every once in a while, I'll kind of bring a new act in a new artist, but mostly I keep going back to the same adolescence. Yes. That's the stuff you connect with on yeah, the, the most visceral glam level, rock really. British invasion you're stuff stuck in that like, for the rest of your life running your stuff with different material because like if you think about like your books are they're, they all have such a completely different kind of tone to them you know Chunky writes the blankets of Habibi it's like were you listening to different music or kind of living your life differently yeah yeah all those things change yeah yeah and it's strange now to be done with Habibi and my brain has moved on to new subjects that I'm obsessed with I'm obsessive about these subjects and I'm also secretive about them a little bit because they're speculative but uh, but yeah. Like so titles. so I'm on. I've been on Habibi tour and talking about Habibi, but my mind has moved on to new subjects because you can't contain all that it's at the same time. You, your comics are always a time capsule too, and it's like, and you're always a little bit farther than 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 like the readers are in your life, and it's like they're mm-hmm. getting you even at the most they're getting you like three months ago. That's what we were talking about. Um, I think Paul Pope's redrawing a bunch of his early THB now, mm-hmm. and for me it was like. Like it's, there's such an excitement in seeing the early work how it was when it came out, and I just like I want to always be able to see those pages they where they were, and not kind of. That's a strange phenomenon. I I, I don't know. You're. It, it, this is very frustrating when you're uh, meeting people and somebody says, "My favorite stuff of yours is like what you were doing ten years yeah. ago." You know that kind but of thing. And you like, feel that way about other cartoonists sometimes, right? We true. We were talking about Chester Brown and how. Attached well, we all are to Ed the Happy Clown, like right. his earliest work, and yeah. And as much as I still love his drawing style, well, for instance, with paying for it, could we at least have it big enough so I could see it, see the illustrations? But yeah, I I want I know what you're saying. Uh, it, it like the, that's how people react with Star Wars. You know, I want to see it the way I saw yeah, the movie I was theater. Of Star Wars too. But well, yeah, Star Wars um, but sure. then the artist is the one that. Uh, I want it like this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so um, when I see somebody change their style, I it's it is uh, like we were talking about Bernie Moreau the other night, um, one of my favorite artists who, mm-hmm. with the jam, big influence on me, and now he's working digitally. And it's like no, I want to see the brush line, right. and I want to, you know. So, uh, but he's the artist. That's what he wants to do right now, and yeah. And so and we don't want to tackle anyone. We're I know. Be like, no. <laughs> well, you do. Well, yeah. I mean, like we were talking about Kyle Baker. Like you've got this Kyle Baker page up on the wall. It's just yeah. this beautiful inked thing. And like he just does digital stuff now. It's like you want to you want to sneak into his house and mess with his computer so it doesn't work. So he's like, I guess I got to use ink today. Oh, I've learned I've learned more from 
studying original art than I ever have from right. looking at printed work. I can, where you can see that the pencil dug in there, or it was a pen, or a, you can see the brush, and you can see the the pencil stuff that isn't in the the final artwork. Right. You can the underlying under drawings, and um, that's precious stuff. And um, to think that that doesn't exist is it, it, you know, it's something I have a hard time adjusting to. But right. at the same time, like uh, Kyle Baker's work on uh, Wednesday Comics, for instance, it's stunning. So I'm I'm not taking anything away from him, but I I know what my preference is. And, right. But those favorite artists uh, are remain so, and then I also revisit the work which introduced me to them, and I get that renewed enthusiasm that I had to begin with, and mm -hmm. and then I see their progression and try to contemplate my progression am i progressing yeah it's am i falling backwards I, I feel like i'm a i, I just completely study other artists and I, I love studying artists entire lives when you can look at like at what point like where am i in relation to this or something yeah and Mobius is really interesting because he always kept it going so much more than than a lot of creators or, or like guys like kirby or something it didn't even start getting really interesting until they were like in their 40s oh yeah his that's 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 another thing I love about this profession is there's like no age limit. You know, right. I mean, look at what Joe Kubert is doing today, mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, it's like it's not like you're not cool anymore when you turn thirty. You know, right. I, you do see a lot of people get burned out though too, and then you see people that pace themselves in, incredibly slowly, like well Charles Burns. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know if if he just works really slow or if it's precious to him because we we've, we've seen him draw yeah he's fast yeah he can knock it out but uh why do the pages come so slow or if it's the ideas are slow even though the drawing's fast that could be it too i know why i know why it takes forever to watch your stuff come out because of my thumbnail process it, and it's just so intricate too there's just a lot of detail on the page you know it's no secret i love craig we did a little european tour before craig did and it was a thrill seeing Habibi in stacks at every single store we oh, went to. Thank you. That I was it was like just so proud. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. Little Craig did good. <laughs> Little Craig doing good. Yeah. I that I, I get I sincerely that that thrills me. I I love seeing artists that that I love and people I love have success and it it uh, it's, it, I love this business. It's it's all it, it's all circular. It's all uh, that's where my inspiration comes from. This constant uh, affection and and um, enthusiasm and inspiration that just keeps swarming around, and I I've never found that anywhere else. And I've looked. Yeah, because I'm wondering if it's similar in the rest of the art world. I don't know if Robin had it, had insight on that, but it's weird because I kind of like, separate myself from the main. I've been kind of actively separating myself from kind of the main comic scene and have my little bubble of friends and everything. Yeah, because a lot of it is I, I just I don't always relate to, to comic book people, and I wonder if it's just kind of different background or or what. Yeah, I'm the same. My my two best buddies are one's a painter and one's a musician, and that's like the creative energy that I sort of feed off of. It's healthy for me if I'm already in comic book land all day long that like when I leave the house right. I'm getting still getting creative energy but from yeah, different source like, uh, like like some of my favorite like like Marion and, and, and James Stoko are like you know two of the comic artists I hang out with the most and two of my favorite artists and like neither of them are very interested in reading comics at all which is very bizarre to me that some of my favorite work is coming out of people that are taking their influences completely from elsewhere because mm -hmm. I'm so comic book powered 
I'm just eating the stuff. That continues to stun me that anybody... I, I know that anybody should be able to find a comic book that they would just be crazy in love with. Mm-hmm. But it shocks me how people won't even allow it. Uh-huh. Won't even entertain the possibility of trying to read a, a comic book or a graphic novel. I wonder if some, some people, it's just kind of what they learned when they're... I mean, both of you talking about how... I, mean, I get the idea both of you were into comics very early on and then came back to it later. Yeah. And it's like you it's like you learn the language so you could understand it later. But I mean, I mean, everyone's had kind of showing comics to some ant or something and then being just like, where, which direction do I read? But who doesn't like looking at pictures? That's who doesn't like a good story? So here you have a good story and you have interesting artwork to tell that story and you're reading left to right, mm-hmm. you know? And um, it, for me... Uh, again, like going back to Mr. X, this first second I saw it, it, I had to read it. And then I saw this great, you know, it had the, the German expressionism influences in there and um, great imagery and this unique character who had all these secret passageways. And so, and the more I get into it, the more I loved it and the more I had to have it. And, right. and which made me, you know, it was for me, it was like a bug. And so it, it's odd for me when. I don't see everybody having that experience where they find something where they, and they just have to have more and more and more. Right. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see that. Mr. X is funny for me, though, because the mystery is so open for because I only read the... I basically read the... Uh, I had this long period of time where I dropped out of high school and I would just sit there and read my brother's comics. And he only had the, the Jaime Hernandez issues. So those are the only ones I read. So the mystery is still open for me. Like It never like, really... Yeah, I, I it never know. really came to any kind of but they're just like is he one of the architects of the city we don't even know right yeah and it's kind of great to think back about that and being like man is it ever and then terminal city was was that the same guy um I, yeah dean Motter was yeah it's it mr x has got a really interesting history you know dean Motter was the original creator who collaborated with people like paul ravoche and then the hernandez brothers mm-hmm. and just an amazing group of if you look at the collections i mean seth um, it has Seth done is several a issues. Good person to bring up because I keep thinking that like comics is so much about nostalgia and less about pop culture. Even though we keep name dropping pop culture, I'm like comics isn't pop culture anymore. It's not like and the people being born now are like they're not going to have the literacy towards comics. It's not going to make sense. It's two dimensional. It's on paper. It's you know they're very visually oriented, but they're used to you know like iPads and stuff like that, and that's how they think of things visually and tangibly it's not what are they creating a new kind of nostalgia where they're like oh man i remember when i was reading one piece on my ipad man That's i just want to recreate that again. <laughs> so i think of comics more in a seth sort of way as like it's like this old-fashioned profession like cobblery like it's just something we want to keep alive like the banjo or something <laughs> i guess part of our like roots so you know but has their own nostalgia too like i'm always like you know like 70s and 80s like you know science fiction comics I'm just like if i could just do those and then like you're talking about going back to the banjo like is that like a is that like a guitar with two necks or something that I'm talking that I'm <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people will keep continue to keep the banjo alive when we're all living like on Mars. But yeah, Mars so band so band it's band encouraging because there'll always be I think some sort of interest in this sort of nostalgia, but I do think of it more as nostalgia now. I is think there, Seth is there has an era that you're really trying to hark back to in your stuff? Well, right now I'm in total 80s nostalgia. So like after finishing a serious project like Habibi, I'm like in childhood nostalgia mode full on. Where anything that was, I was just wondering if that I was, was into you being like, 
like uh, like oh man, I really want to do something like the Quran. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually the Tabibi started where I wanted to do something fantastical and fun, mm-hmm. and then kind of went wandered off on a tangent that was a little bit more serious. And this time, I'm really am doing something fantastical and fun. Nice. That's more like I'm totally all like in like um, Ghostbusters, Goonies, Voltron, Robotech, sort of anything wow. that came out in the yeah. 80s. I'm like, you know, BMX bikes, Atari 2600, all that sort of stuff is in my... Wow. Gleaming the Cube. Yep, Cubert and Gleaming the Cube. Gleaming, Gleaming the Cubert. <laughs> That's the t- working title, actually. <laughs> Were you Gleaming the Cube back in the 80s? <laughs> Bones Brigade in? Very little. Oh, okay.
Miyazaki's doing on the process it's really funny he's so snarky like it's his work is so um, friendly yeah and to read his ideas on art he's kind of like he's kind of mean really <laughs> yeah but in a, but I wonder almost is to do work of that quality the way that he does it kind of commanding where he's got to run like a whole studio of guys you'd almost have to be like you know, like you almost couldn't be too nice because you have to have like you know 50 guys that you're telling what to do you can't be like well you know do whatever feels right, right. <laughs> yeah you have to um, the commanding officer. Yeah, so that's a nice thing about comics is you can you can kind of afford to be nicer because you're can you can you can keep it in on your own work. That, yeah. I mean, not that it's helped me out. But. Yeah, but with the the people I worked with in and broadcasting, it was I was never the guy that I was the guy getting barked at. Right. Yeah, not fun. Yeah, me and Craig were just talking on the way here about how. Neither of us want to be the person. Like, I, like I don't think it necessarily helps artists at all. If you, if like some kid comes up to you and they show you their stuff to kind of rip it apart, as much as just be like, you know, kind of, you, like you don't want to be the guy that that, that destroys their hopes and dreams. You know, and, yes. and for me, it's like the stuff that got me really excited is when I met artists and they're really nice and they're really cool. I was like, I want to be like that guy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very big into constructive criticism. I, um, you know, we've all seen some pretty awful stuff, but. I, I truly believe that if somebody enjoys doing it, that they'll keep doing it to the point where they can't help but get better. Right. And so I, I try really hard to just concentrate on finding the good thing to like 
you know, nurture it. Because mm -hmm. um, I know how I would have felt. I know how, I, like, I know when Will Eisner talked to me, I know how that felt. He was brutal. And, um... Really? Will? He seems like and, the sweetest but it, gentleman. But in a very... <laughs> well, he was drunk. <laughs> and it was, it was, it, he, he had a knack. For me, it was like, okay, let, let's, I'll put it in real context. I, and I would, this was a really good lesson for me. I was convinced that it was great and he was just going to rave. And when he didn't, it, that was devastating. But then what he told me was constructive. You know, do this. Do you remember what it was? Um, well, for one thing, don't ink with a rapidiograph. Okay. You know, so learning about deadline, a deadline, and you know the lushness that a brush will give you, and when when to have a deadline, and mm -hmm. when to have you know a nice, organic, living uh, line. Um, but he pretty much just said that I needed to work on pretty much everything. My draftsmanship, my anatomy, my perspective. <laughs> and then he picked apart your outfit. Your um, anatomy was always good, though. I feel like in, in, in dead, dead air, air, the anatomy is good and, and maybe everything else sucks. Right? Really? If, I, I remember loving oh, dead air. I remember loving it, but I remember feeling like the, the anatomy was so far ahead of the other drawing in it. If I, but maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Yeah. It, if it's ahead, it's... I feel like you always have this very <laughs> instinctual of the, sense of... Oh, I, I can think of specific panels really? where the anatomy is just ridiculous. Okay. Um, but... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I thought the backgrounds were amazing, but the anatomy was off. Oh, no, not even that. No, I, okay. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And, and I think uh, because, like, this is after taking college art classes and everything, but I'd never inked before. It was always a pencil. It was always brushes. And then I thought, well, it's a comic book. You, you're supposed to ink it. And um, the art department at the Air Force Academy had some rapidiographs, so I used those. Okay. And I even, I even inked it on, like, uh, copy paper, like 11 by 17 copy paper. Um, and a lot of pages on that stuff. Really? Uh, you know, it was, I did everything wrong. But um, he didn't, the important thing is, whatever he said, I think I was so numb because he didn't think it was brilliant, which is, and, and so when somebody shows something to me, I know they think they did something really special because they enjoyed doing it, obviously. It, it meant something to them to do it. <laughs> and they're not just showing you, like, fix this. <laughs> right. It's like, look what I did. Mm -hmm. And they're expecting me to go, wow. And instead, it's like, wow, you got a long way to go. And so I know how that feels. And I, so I don't remember specifically what Will said to me, but I remember it was um, it's that experience where you're broken down and then you start to get built back up again. So he told me pretty much, you got a lot of work to do, but here's how you do it. Wow. And so I, I remember Man. thinking... Okay, you know, Will Eisner told me I can do it, and this is how I start. And so I did, and, and that's when I just really became more of a, a real student of how things should be done and storytelling and, and when to use several panels to show an action or to just jump from one to, you know, and not even show the action. Mm -hmm. Just really starting to break that kind of stuff down in my head. 
And it was because of the time he took going through it and saying here and here and here and here and here. And, um, and I think by this time also Slave Labor was already set to publish it. So it, it was like I knew it was going to come out and I knew that it that Will Eisner wasn't going to like sing its praises. <laughs> It's um, funny, I've been doing this thing lately, and it's like this obnoxious thing that I can't stop myself. Sometimes I'll be reading comics, and even good comics. Like I read a, a recent Daredevil book; it was incredibly well drawn. And the, there's the a new, um, like with Marcos Martin. Or, yeah, exactly. Uh, Paulo. I think it was uh, I, the Mark Wade written stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it was one of those good. guys. That's really and there's this stuff. sequence where Daredevil throws his baton. Around, they're at a wedding, and Daredevil throws his baton around a, around like a pole. To, and like catches the other side of it and it's like a panel of it, it's, it's a lot of panels they used to show that and just like I was I was kind of in work mode and I was reading it and I, I like sat down and redrew the sequence and I was like how can I condense this and what's another way to show that because it's such a specific action and I tried to and I was like it was one of those things where I was like going to put it up on the internet next to it and I looked like I, I realized it would make me look like a jerk like this guy did it wrong <laughs> when I, I liked the way he did it I just wanted to see like how I would how do else it. you could do it yeah just yeah. fun to kind of be in that mode where yeah the Matt Madden's 99 what ways? Oh, right. Have you seen that book? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I haven't. It's where the Matt Madden redraws one scene from 99 ways. Uh, but they're all very wow. I'm doing a horrible job of describing it. He uh, does it in a very this kind is of... a book? Yeah. Yeah, but it originated with like film or something like a it's new because it, I something. mean, in some ways it opens up how many more ways you could show it because it's, it's very American. Because I, I look at so much manga storytelling, it's interesting to see like his way of showing different ways to do it is like, here's a more realistic art style, and then here's a more cartoony art style with the same panels, or you know, here's just the word balloons or whatever. Or it's cool to like open it up incredibly, and like you know, if you're looking at like if you look at like Shiro stuff, there's panels. He does things in here where there's panels that don't need to convey action. They're just like empty beats, you know, like weird things that like are so outside of just like kind of Western standard. Can I see one of those? I mean, that's yeah. what uh, Scott McCloud <laughs> talks about, right? Where he talks about like. In manga, all those panels that just Can like see your stack? are um, are just like aren't related to the narrative. They just you wander for a moment, or you hear a little sound effect in the background. Yeah, totally. It distracts you for a moment, and that's that's healthy in the story. Like I love how um, there's that thing in, in understanding comics where just McCloud takes the a sequence and makes it like a happy sequence. Uh, the girl going to the grocery store and buying the ice cream, and then does it as like you know this is like a, a doing the same thing as a dark sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's like when that book came out, I was just like, I was just in the point where I was like, I want to disagree with everything in this. But then that, it's like really opened up the possibilities. And I was like, this is exciting. I like this. He's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just, it's my favorite thing to, to see new stuff. I just, uh, and then I love revisiting it, you know, right. like listening to uh, favorite songs. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, that's my buzz. That that there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing stuff that lights me up. Big Lebowski. We were just talking about that film because you can watch it like so many times, and it's a totally different film each time you watch it. Oh yeah, it. it's pretty watchable. Hey, uh, yeah. You ever see Get Into Repo Man? I've actually never seen Repo Man. Oh, that's I know it's embarrassing. Film. I actually just was discussing that this week too because it plays every week with oh, yeah. you know Rocky Horror Picture Show at like the local theater. Whatever. I'm like, wow, I've Alex seen this cult Cox was the filmmaker. He did that and Sid and Nancy. Right. Oh, what, whatever happened to him? I, I saw a recent. Well, he did a recent like Repo Girl or something. He did some horrible B movie version of it, 
and uh, wait, Repo Man isn't a B movie. Oh, yeah, it's well, it's it's fine. It's it's you know it's the finest thing ever filmed. But <laughs> but uh, they even did a Repo Man sequel comic book that I think Cox was involved in, and I just saw some previews of it. It just didn't seem to relate to the first one at all. It's one of those things where it's like, man, I wish I had a, a stab. I remember years ago I actually tried to get the rights to uh, Big Trouble in Little China to do a comic with Oni at it, and they wow. And we found out that I think Top Cow had already gotten the rights, and they. I don't know if the book ever came out, but I saw pages of what they're, and it was Jack Burton in high school, and it was like they completely missed the point and doing it completely. It was like he was really effective, where I don't know if you're a big fan of that one, but it's a, it's a big deal for me. And, uh, you know, it's like his the whole thing is like Escape from New York. Should we watch it? Yeah, that would be. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I even, I have something, I think it's just my, me being a weird teenager, but Escape from L.A., even resonates with me more than Escape from New York, even though I know Escape from New York's a better movie. Because you like tsunami surfing? Yeah, or just that end of it is so <laughs> badass when he's just like, welcome to the human race, and he just like cuts all power in the world. Yeah. Okay, uh, Snake Plissken is actually in an Appleseed issue briefly. He just oh turned. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I was actually rereading Appleseed recently. Is that, was it with permission? Or? It was just, he's just in one a panel. Cameo, yeah. He just is like, he's just in a so panel a, walking by saying, so call me Snake. says it just looks like Snake Plissken. Yeah. No, he says, they say that. He too. says, call me Snake, but then they're like, they're oh. calling him some other name or something in the panel. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm curious about is for someone who's not involved in comics, you look at artists, artists make their art, and comics to your art. Um, but the big thing is, the real stamping point is your style. So, where does, what develops style? Where does that style come from? Is, is, do you push yourself to, to draw in a certain way, or is it automatic? I know. <laughs> oh, good. You're calling out. Uh, my theory is it's it's the the chemistry of your influences, all your different. I think when you start out, like you either want to draw like Jack Kirby or you know Barry Windsor Smith, you try to draw like your heroes, which may not be a healthy thing, but you try. You really wish you were that artist. And I think, so in my case, I would say, you know, all the different influences, um, like, for instance, Charles Burns saying, I use a Windsor Newton brush. Oh, I got to use a Windsor Newton brush. So um, you just kind of take what techniques you lose, use, and then whatever is unique about yourself is kind of uh, originally a tiny part of that ingredient, and then that starts to grow, like the seed is planted. And then all those influences kind of fall away as what's unique about you and the mixture of those influences come together. That's my theory. It's funny. And, and everyone seems to have their own line. And sometimes you see artists kind of, I feel like they're fighting their line when you see their work. Like a lot of times when people are, are uh, pretty developed in their style, but you can tell they're trying to draw like another artist. And it's almost like that guy's like, you know, it's like he's, he's fighting who he is. Why would he do that? Yeah, I, I mean, I understand that impulse because I don't know if I'm in love with my style. Like, I, I think I think my style it, it does exist in spite of myself. Like, it's not it doesn't feel deliberate. So, I, what you said resonates that it is all the things you've soaked up and then sort of coming out in its own clunky way in a personal way. Um, but but maybe I don't even think about style. Like, I want to think about content. And I think being a cartoonist, I mean, it has that benefit that you're not really thinking. I don't know. I don't know if well, the, the physical surface style is conscious. One thing you specifically um, did in front of me that impacted me, and I tried to rip off, 
was um, you, uh, how you don't care that the brush runs out of ink. You let that bright, dry brush hold and you let that line exist dry. Mm-hmm. Where I, I, my natural tendency would be, oh no, the, I have to go back over that line again because uh, it, it's not, you know, it ran out of ink. And now I see the, the expressiveness of it, the beauty of it, just, you know, that natural dry... Yeah, and that came out of, uh, well, blankets, but F, I mean, with Chunky Rice, I had a very slick style. Yes. But at the same time that I got to that point where I was perfecting a slickness in my brush line is when, like, computer art was starting, you know, or like, and I was working as a graphic designer, so I was doing all kinds of work in Illustrator with vectors and stuff, and I realized, like, oh, all those slick lines are, look like vector-based drawings. So I wanted to get farther away from that and, and have the, the more textural things that were unique to hand drawing. Huh. Sorry, can I just stop here for a second? Yeah. That's interesting. So it was, it was a conscious, conscious effort on your part to make sure it didn't look like a computer I wanted line. it to feel more That's human. Funny. Yeah, just like things that move style kind of towards one direction or away from another direction. But, I, but in trying to uh, bring that into my toolbox, it didn't pan out. It just, it was against my natural, um, it, so it's like, it, it was like, oh, it doesn't look right, you know? Because I don't think my style is suited to that. So that's one of the reasons why I started when we are doing this technique I was telling you that, uh, so I do my line art like I normally would, but then I can go in there and play with it because that's going to be on a channel that can be used or not used. Yeah. That's when I can do the dry brush and stuff and, and, fill. and fill it. Yeah, and just let it live or not. So that that's that's why that's freed me up, and that's why I'm excited with doing that that way. There's something that I really enjoy sometimes when I'm coloring my own my own work, and I will have and and they'll, you'll see something, you'll be like, oh, I want to do this thing, and they'll draw that on another piece of paper and scan it and throw it in. It's kind of like that, just like little extras. Yeah. Say that one more time. I was just thinking, it was, I think that was nonsense because I was <laughs> oh, okay. just kind of excited about the idea. <laughs> but I just, I, I, when I'll be, I'll have a page scanned in and be working on it on the computer and be, and be coloring it. And then sometimes it's just when I mess up. I recently finished a page and was coloring it and noticed that I forgot to draw a guy's arm. An entire arm was missing. <laughs> I mean, it's that big in the background, but... Um, and so I just, I drew another arm and scanned it in. It was like, all right, let's make this arm fit on his body. You just scanned the arm. I mean, it wasn't just like, let's draw an arm. I like actually like, you know, figured it out yeah. in relation to the, but, uh, but like sometimes. An animation cell. Yeah. It's great to look at a finished page and be like, this is what's going to print like. What else can we add to that too? And I've been doing, the great thing about like print technology now is sometimes I'll just, I'll go through a stack of like magazines I have and just be like, oh, let me scan this out of here. And I did a page picture and I was like, I wanted just a bunch of stuff over here. And I just scanned an article from a Japanese magazine and just threw it as the background mm. just because I wanted kind of words and, and patterns there. And uh, it was funny, it was a naked girl drawing. And then um, a friend of mine who speaks Japanese later on read, read the thing. And he was like, this is an article about a woman talking about how weird her own breast milk tastes. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of perfect. <laughs> it fit. It's better than some mechanical thing or... Right. Yeah, but I know what you mean. You, 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 there's something graphic and attractive about especially Japanese figures and, and uh, lettering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I'll, I'll buy a t-shirt, a Japanese t-shirt, just because it, you know, they have a n- neat little graphic image, but right. then just the writing just looks cool. I've gotten to this thing too where sometimes I want to do, um, since I love so much manga, a lot of times I'm like, I want to do a sound effect that looks like this, but I don't 
I'm not interested in doing a Japanese sound effect or an English sound effect, so I just do these nonsense. Just so, yeah, the pleasures that you don't know. It's like what Dave Cooper does, I guess. The pleasures yeah, exactly. you don't actually know the words. So you can. Yeah. It's like almost how I felt about Arabic in, in Habibi was oh, that yeah. I could just savor it for its, you know, its visual beauty because I couldn't read it. I wasn't mm -hmm. fluent in it. So I feel similar about kanji. You know, you look at it. It's a cool pictograph. It's a cool. Uh, you know, image was it, was it terrifying? Than... Like, because I, I do some, I sometimes those copy things. But it was it terrifying to take a language where you know people that spoke it and having to like write words you can't speak or don't <laughs> know exactly what what. It's like you're drawing an R, but you don't know what makes it an R. Yeah, I think there's only one major mistake that I know of um, that I've fixed, but it'll be a while before it's out. So, but yeah, and yeah, I was worried, and usually I was just tracing. You know, I was just copying yeah. as best as I could. I had a friend who does graffiti, and um, he's, he lives in Japan now, and he was, I, I was saying, because the weird thing about Japanese graffiti is they don't, they do English letters still, and I was saying, like, are you going to, you know, are you going to do Japanese graffiti over there? And he was saying that he, he doesn't know, it's like, you have to really know, these have to be letters you grew up with, so you know them, so you can really mess with Abstract them. Abstract them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the thing with uh, Arabic, I wanted to create more calligraphic compositions, mm -hmm. but I couldn't because, it, yeah, those aren't familiar to me. And if I'm writing any English word, I can be expressive as I want. It's right. still, I, can, I know I'm keeping the integrity of the original letter somehow intact. Right. And you can't do that with another language. Is there anything in Habibi that you don't know what it means? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, not intentionally, certainly. No, every little bit, like, uh, has some sort of like meaning to it. I was okay, just that's, putting that's stuff in there I, to be pretty. I imagine okay. it would be such a different read if you understood every... Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. I think it is a different experience for Arabic readers, a little bit. Now, you do your own lettering, right? I do, I do now. Well, yeah, for my own stuff. I'm happy you are now. Well, thank you. I'm, <laughs> I'm only starting to now. Okay, so in the giant 20th anniversary... So that's going to be like the direction you're headed now? Because I liked it. I Trying. Like, it you liked it? <laughs> it's huh. good. Yeah, and I like when Paul Pope letters his stuff. I love he it. he hasn't oh, done yeah. for the longest time either. Yeah, like, even when it's all sloppy, weird, and hard well, to read. Well, he has that left-handed lettering, yeah, totally. you know? A friend of mine uh, always talks about how, like, he's like, talks about the joy. I, I used to think of lettering as like, because, you know, there's no computers. I didn't have access to any computers when I was first uh, doing comics. And so it wasn't an option. It was just, I'm going to, if it's going to have words, they're going to be handwritten. And so, you know, and I kind of thought of it as a chore. And then a friend of mine really got into the idea of how he would just, just brag about how much he enjoyed lettering. And it got into my head. And now it's just this great joy to hand letter things. And also, it's great to have to, it's like to change the language you're using. Because if you're just typing it out and be like, the letter will fit it in there. It's like, you're not thinking as much about like, you know, sometimes I'll be lettering and I'll be like, that word I want to use is too long for this, for this like thing right here. So I have to make a smaller word or sometimes you'll just make up words as you're going or whatever and there's it's definitely a joy to that hmm. yeah I as a fan of of that I thought I was always kind of short shifting myself by uh, by not I'd convinced myself that my hand lettering was awful and it is but the more I would look at other artists whose work I enjoyed who didn't like your hand writing is amazing and, and or Daniel Klaus Mm -hmm. who can change it up. Dylan Horrocks. Yeah, these guys that it, it's part of the artwork. Mm -hmm. But then there were enough artists that their lettering wasn't spectacular or necessarily attractive, yet it because it did naturally blend with the art, like Paul's, mm -hmm. 
Um, it's like, well, I should at least try to do that. And so I did. And I mean, I even uh, Nate Picos did a, a lettering font for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. But there is something, I, I just keep going back to organic, organic, organic. I just want things to feel like a hand, a human being made it. Right. Which is like a Robin's initial thing about preciousness, too, is that when it becomes too precious you lose the organic you always want the organic element in there i I like spontaneity i like uh spontaneity um and that's all part of expressiveness and uh, i when i look at the work which i love the most and i keep going back to and you know the the uh the whole burning house theory what's the what are the books that you would grab first Mm -hmm. um it it's the those kind of artists the the ones that are organic and and um, you know have that real feel to them. Um, now, when I'm working for a mainstream company, it, it makes sense and I don't fight it. You know, uh, and especially like with iZombie, I, Todd Klein letters the book. You know, I'm not going to complain. That's fantastic. But it also makes letter. it makes sense from an editorial uh, timing point of view. Point of view where you, we got to get this book out, we got to fix the mistakes. Right. And, and I, and when I'm doing different types of stuff, I notice that different type. Like I prefer computer lettering, or at least to have my lettering to, to write just after the artwork is done. So like when I'm doing the profit stuff and I'm collaborating with people, I'm just, um, or even a lot of King City, I, I'll draw the page with a basic idea of what they say, and it's nice to have a finished page and be like, okay, now I can tweak the dialogue. Whereas you're doing it on hand. Are you doing your work on the page directly? Yeah. In the letter. Yeah. But again, just my. Pure creator-owned stuff. It, it's it's yeah on the page. But yeah, it definitely changes the writing style too. Like there's something great about um, like with Prophet, I, I do the dialogue, you know, kind of old Marvel style where it's like I have, it's like we've talked about the pages and we've thrown back and forth layouts, and then I have the finished pages of the entire book out there, and then just dialogue the whole thing in a day, and so it kind of has more of a kind of can gel in a different way where it's like I'm working on multiple warheads or whatever, and. It takes me like like that's you know three months of every day. I'm just like, what do they say on this page? And <laughs> and like I really like I sometimes there's there's a danger of overthinking stuff. I have this writing technique sometimes where I'll I'll rough out a page and before I letter it, I'll go like take a bath and I'll sit in the bathtub with a piece of paper and like on some poor comic book that gets water damaged and just like rework the dialogue and think about it. And it's like I totally think it's like you can it's like you have an hour just to think about that and it's often like often do you bathe during your creative process a lot <laughs> an insane and my and do you, you bathe know. every day like bath <laughs> bathe I'm, I'm into baths yeah and and i it's funny because comics that i really really love i can't read in the bathtub where so i end up reading a lot of really bad comics because i'm like i don't care if this gets wet <laughs> so i'll just like i'll uh, my girlfriend came over the other day and i was sitting in the bathtub reading elf lord and i was like this is awkward <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like just even the like the balloons and sound effects, they, it just makes sense for them to be on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I worry about I wonder about worry wonder I don't know wonder about people who just write comics but don't draw them because with my newest book I'm I'm doing this thing where I, I am kind of I organize my notes on a word document basically get all the dialogue down on there and uh, and sometimes I'm like okay this is the right amount of information for a page or this is the page break. But then when I start laying out the page or drawing it, I'm like, well, that just does not work visually. Yeah. So I don't know how it works with right. Well, yes, you've worked with more writers. You're allowed some sort of like leverage with that or something like. 
Yeah, the, I, I, like an Alan Moore script must be like hell, basically, because it's so dense. Right. I, I I can't even imagine. I, um, but uh, I've been given a lot of leeway with all my collaborations, um, and sometimes too much is being said, and it. So I'll think of another moment or an expression for a character to have to to split it up a little bit more, but uh, it, it's an, it's enjoyable, but. Also, as a as a fan of original art, I I love seeing that stuff on there. You know, I love I, yeah. And um, and but even even back in the day, that you'd you'll see paste up lettering paste ups on an artwork for whatever reason. The letterer didn't get it before the inker, yeah. or uh, even the penciler. And so, it the, again, there's no rules. I mean, there's a Johnny Craig um, EC page right there that lettering was done with a machine but it's on the page yeah I always wondered how they did that how yeah did I had that? no idea do they typeset them like an old I think, style? I think, I think it's a isn't it a uh, isn't it a thing where um, they there's a stylus that goes into the letter and they set it on the I, I had it explained to me once and it did not make any kind of practice yeah I imagine sets. a stencil overlay yeah. things that they trace each letter through a stencil but yeah, I don't know. I hate the lettering in those things. <laughs> who likes who likes EC lettering? Nobody does, right? No, but I like that it's it's but, it's ink on page. But I bet there's some ink joy on paper. To like like it's funny. I always think about how I'm really influenced a lot of times by kind of weird, like so much of the stuff I read was translated. It's like I have this total idea of like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna letter my stuff. I'm gonna color my own stuff and everything. And then it's like you look at a bunch of the manga or like the French stuff that I was looking at, and it's like it wasn't done that way. You know, it was like I think it was like five years ago. I, I actually realized that a lot of the Mobius stuff was him kind of guiding other people to color his stuff and him pointing stuff out, like the the stuff that Marvel put out. Well, the epic stuff wasn't it like Felix, Felix somebody that did a, the. There was a couple people. But it, it was hand lettering that was obviously oh, yeah. pa pasted over, um, as opposed to that. Um, and and also, it's it's font has a lot to do with. It. There's a lot of computer lettering which I like. It looks looks really cool. There's a lot of it which I hate, right? Um, and I, the stuff that I hate, I would prefer the worst handwriting, really done on the page, than the computer lettering that I hate. The thing that always gets me is uh, computer done sound effects. Those are always the devil to me. Yeah. Oh, Again, there, yeah. there's just kind of a stiffness. But there's some guys that are like Nate Picos, who I've worked with a lot, and, and Todd Klein. Those, and uh, I, I, they I put sound effects in too. Yeah, I mean, where it, it, they make it look like it's integrated into the artwork and there's a lot of letters I'm a big fan of uh, the old school guys like oh, yeah. Sam Rosen and the big Tom Rosowski fan and uh, yeah there and, you and go. John Workman's amazing some guys are really great um, um, Sean Conant excellent so I'm a fan um, and so I'm not saying oh computers but for me personally I just don't like having to turn the darn thing on and <laughs> you know <laughs> I wait for something to load up to make it happen as opposed to you got a piece of paper and you just write on it and draw on it. And I love that. Yeah. It's just instant gratification. It reminds me of the story I was telling Craig the other day where um, I was working on this page and I was just, I kept looking up on the internet like how to draw like this this bus stop. And I was like, all right, I'm going to draw this bus stop. And I, would, I just realized like I'm an idiot. And I just went outside and sat in front of a bus stop and drew it. And it's like kind of have to yeah. remind myself of that all the time. Yeah, that's how you have to do it. And that's how I was with blankets. I was very pure. I had no camera. I had no computer. There was never any referencing that wasn't just something directly from life. I even made a, a good friend because I was looking for a specific pickup truck. So I was wandering the streets looking for a reference. 
Huh. And I stood there on the street sketching this pickup truck, and the person came out, and they were worried, like, what is this man yeah. doing? <laughs> but I ended up becoming really good friends with them. So nice. that would never happen if I was, you know, scrolling around the internet looking right. for a pickup reference. Yeah, you don't, want to, you don't want to meet those friends you meet on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost track of how many times I've had to explain to somebody why I'm hanging out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, like, in, in a mall. Um, like if you if you want to take a camera, just get some quick reference. Uh, you're safer to sit there with a the sketchbook because if you are there taking pictures of the thing with the camera, the security oh, people security, freak yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, sketchbooks. Oh, you're you're making sketches. In some ways, I find that a little more frightening making schematic drawings. <laughs> yeah, no, we should plan a crime. We should plan a heist. <laughs> and, just, yeah. Yeah, and then we can publish the heist book later. And things definitely changed. Um, you know. Uh, I, I remember there there was no big deal walking around either taking pictures or drawing pictures of people's houses or right. and and then uh, you know all of a sudden the world just got really scary and people are very concerned right yeah we're really scared do you ever do a Google image search looking for stuff oh yeah there was this story two of the guys and I was part of this meat house group in New York and I think it was uh, Tomer Hanuka and James Jean um were picking at each other because they'd both drawn, they both had were doing advertising art or, or you know art in the New Yorker or whatever, and they'd each drawn the same kind of house because they both just looked up house and it was one of the first good images that came up. And it's kind of there's Why a danger. Why would you Google then. search house? Though? That's the strangest <laughs> thing that Google search. I mean, I remember with Habibi certainly Google searching image Google searching camel, and that automatically turns up all kinds of. It's the internet, right? Yeah, camel toe, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, that that's the, so. I, that's what I was getting at. I don't know how risque. It's like you're. It should be a challenge. Try to Google image search anything that doesn't end up with something pornographic. I was telling Brandon my, my theory is that you should always pencil the page first without any reference, and then you can maybe use reference to fix the things that you know instinctually are wrong or to enhance them a bit. So like that leather jacket drawing your son, like draw your leather jacket and then be like, okay, it'd be fun to do uh, yeah. or actual reference so I can get sort of, sort right. of the lighting proper. But I think it's just got to come first from a very instinctual place. I agree. I, uh, I did a cover for a guy. It's called uh, Super Crazy Animal Hand. And it's this uh, school girl who has giant animal hands. <laughs> It's just insane. That's why I agreed to do it. But um, right, you have the huge so castle I, googling schoolgirl on the yeah. Well, no, I drew it. I drew it first, and then I thought, okay, I better look at some uh, schoolgirl schoolgirl uniforms. <laughs> and so I just wrote, you know, Google image search uh, yeah. uh, schoolgirl uniforms, and it's like, pow! You lost the entire day. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a lot of uniforms. Either way, the, the, the finished artwork was unpublishable. Is the point. <laughs> You should have just Google search schoolgirl animal hands. Like, uh, that's more fascinating. Things you can't unsee. Um, sometimes I've been doing things. Sometimes um, I did a story in Dark Horse Presents recently, and I, uh, I there was a, a photograph that I just thought was cool that I just had saved in some file, and I uh, put it in Photoshop and just started messing. I turned it into a page and just basically like added panels and like cut and paste. The kind of made a collage page, and so I started from that photograph, and then I was like, how can I turn this into something I can use? And then based. A drawing a, a page off of it so it's kind of going from reference and not even with an idea and sometimes sometimes I'll try to draw from reference too like I'll have a stack of National Geographic and I'll flip through it and I'll be like what kind of comic do I want to do you would be like you know here's a cool looking camel let's try to put that in a story you know and here's you know a bus like how can I make a story about those things 
I like that. That that's how I worked with Habibi. Really, oh, nice. I started probably with you know photos that you know I responded to right. from National Geographic or something, and then started exploring a narrative behind them. For me, it's it's film images for for years, especially as a kid. Before you know, you could get any movie on a tape or disc. I would see books about films that would have stills from films, and those images just kind of. There, some of my favorite images are from movies that I only saw even recently, and the movies are horrible. But those initial images just just hit me. Very dream profoundly. images? Do you use many dream in- images? Oh yeah, I them? have very like Red Rocket Seven. That whole project with the film and the album that all came from a dream. It was I woke up and it's like I just saw it all, like and uh, just and then as I started, it, the dream imagery was just raw and and the kind of stuff where you wake up and you remember it all day where most of my dreams on an average day I'll forget it 30 seconds after I wake up but during this period it was like it was just you were in a lucid state yeah it was I I, I, I cherish when that happens and that that's an amazing thing to me in, in dreams uh, that are very real that it, 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 dreaming them Seeing people, very specific faces and very specific places, which I have no memory of in my life. So is my mind capable of completely inventing real places and people that don't exist? I mean, not, well, not Mike, obviously not real, but like very detailed and explicit. And, and yet, uh, and fantasy style stuff too, where I'll see places that there's no way there are, they exist on earth yet. In my mind, they're completely believable. Totally well, I think that's because many a modern-day shaman is a comic book artist. <laughs> what? Yes. Yes. So you're like on your own spirit vision quest. I yeah, I'm constantly. I'm so comics uh, is a spirit. It makes me hate quest. my brain whenever I hear things like that because I I have the worst muddled, non-visual like. I'll wake up and they're like, oh, I had this horrible dream where I had to wash dishes. And it's not even, they're never interesting. And so it's no. like the idea of like, man, I wish There's we had... There's no way you can draw the stuff you do and not have very interesting dreams. Maybe you're not remembering Maybe I'm not remembering them, but you know... It's, because you're putting no, no, it out on paper. I respond to that. Like, I think my dreams have gotten very boring. Really? And I went through a very maniacal sort of... I actually kept a dream journal for a year. And during that time, I had the, the most disturbing, you know... The twisted sort of imagery in my dreams and maybe it's just because I was following it and I certainly got into that lucid state where you would come back to the same location or the same experience and be like alright I'm going to act differently this time in this moment in my dream But Actually, I just yeah. remembered I had a good dream once that I wanted to do a comic based off it was there was an island and I wanted to kind of docu- it was about documenting the whole history of this island and every um, every page would be like a different year in the island and it would be talking about like the explorers found it this day and then a village was built on it and all this stuff happens on the island and then the end of the comic you see that the island is just the back of a giant who stands up and walks away and it's like kind of a horror comic where people keep disappearing on the island but it's like this guy eating them (laughs) and it was kind of a complete story and i woke up and i was like i should draw that and then i never drew it draw it draw it now or i will all right (laughs) but dream comics now that we're talking about all this dream comics usually aren't very good Unless it's Jim Woodring's Frank, which I don't know if that counts, because I think he's kind of making that stuff up. Right? Really? He's, he swears think, it's all... 
Frank is based on his dreams? He dreams in cartoon land like that? Um, I re- he said some very, I mean, I believe everything he's ever He told is a me. shaman. There's our modern day comic book shaman, Jim Woodring. Yeah, I'll second that. Because he's like, he, he knows that our existence is actually just a dream being dreamed by something else. We were just kind of talking about that because of this mystery and science, mystery and space story that I did. Oh, yeah. But Jim has said things uh, where the various objects and characters have a very specific meaning. And he just goes into this incredible detail, you know, and just completely serious. This means this, this means this, this means this. If it was anybody else, I'd think he was, you know, messing with me. Uh-huh. Maybe he is messing no, with me. No, no, I just think very it's sincere. I think he's convincing. I think he's a visionary. I haven't uh, I've kind of just dabbled in his work and never interacted with him in person. I never have either, but I've read his interviews and he seems. You've never met him? Uh, I've. No, not really. Wow. I've seen him. I've been he was one of the like the early tender days we were talking about earlier with Al Columbians. Jim was one of those guys that was around all the time. He and his wife, wonderful people. They're really sweet. They were just at uh, Pals last year. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I see him at events, and sometimes I want to introduce myself. I'm just. Yeah, he know, was at the Al Columbia thing too when Pim and Francie came out, and mm-hmm. so I, yeah. Uh, I hadn't seen him for a long stretch, but saw him all the time early in my career, and and then a couple of times fairly recently. But yeah, I fascinated by this is where I I love the artist as much as the work because they're just you know I've met some artists that I love their work way more than the artist. Yeah, let's let's make a list. (laughs) But that's rare, honestly. I usually I I, I convinced myself at that point that I'd never really liked them, or I would have liked them when they were younger, but then they turned into someone I didn't get along with. And I don't know if it's reality or me just being like wanting to believe that if somebody's artwork resonates with them, then I can get along with them as a person. Mm -hmm. Because I have that idea, like with you know Von Baudet or George Harriman, where it's just like I feel like I kind of get to know them through their work. Yeah, and it would suck if you like actually found out oh they're actually a jerk. (laughs) I I've fortunately have only had. The bad experience a couple of times. Most most of the, like Jack Kirby, for instance. I a bad experience. No, great oh. experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, he, he's actually one of one of the main examples of the kind of person I want to be, mm-hmm. not just the kind of artist I want to be. The um, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times, and and um, um, he yeah, I just I want to be that kind of man. I think that's a big thing. I feel like I study. I kind of study older cartoonists to be like, what kind of, like, study the adults in comics because it's not really, it's such a... How can you age gracefully in yeah, this well, medium? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a, it, the, young, the young is hyped in comics, you know, like, look at the new thing. But then it's like, what's really admirable for me is like, look at the guy who's 70 and doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. I might, we were talking about luck earlier, for, specifically with my career, I was lucky the people that I have met and have been, you know, nurturing towards me. um, That's why I I feel this way, that most of the people I've met are really great. And because they've been helpful and and haven't been self-centered, they they want to see other people succeed. And I've benefited from that, people that have helped me and and given me advice and, or, um, Frank Miller, who virtually plucked me from obscurity and threw me in with the legend guys that was one of the huge turning points in my career 
where everybody knew who everybody was in that group except me. Right. And so I benefited from that. Like, who's that guy? Mm-hmm. And people were curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I that was a huge leap that I I wouldn't have had otherwise. So luck, luck, luck. Just but it, beyond luck, kindness. You know, this this I I think there's an enthusiasm in our profession where if somebody sees something in your work, they want to see more of it. So it's almost a selfish thing. Like yeah. a lot of my favorite artists that aren't as productive as I'd like them to be, I kind of crack the whip on them because I want it. I want to see more of it and I'll tell an editor about them or... or yeah, well, it's great how much kind of control over like... And maybe control's wrong. It's great how much influence the creators making comics can have over kind of the next generation. Like, um, you know, hey, get in here. Like, let's see yeah. more comics by you. And uh, like I was thinking about like Warren Ellis lately. It's like it's fantastic how many artists he's like, kind of like dragged into comics or get, got attention to. Like uh, I've been really um, into Emma Rios' stuff lately. Who's working on uh, she did a Spider-Man comic recently, and uh, like he found her stuff on some, I think some website or something in in from her work in Spain and kind of started showing her around and got her out there. Like I think Scott Pilgrim kind of was helped out a lot by him, and you know I certainly was. Mm-hmm. And it's great just kind of those those creators that kind of go out of their way to help other people. First person I, I was aware of doing that sort of thing was Matt Wagner. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's great. Where he, he would catalyst. bring people in and um, especially like with the Grendel books and right. Or Dave Sim was always great with that yeah. back of his books. So he'd and yeah, yeah. where Paul Pope emerged first was oh, like yeah. really getting big push through Dave Sim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's too bad how, how Sim kind of, we were talking about this before about how he, it's like he's, he's almost getting a little bit written out of comics history in a way because people kind of, because it's kind of recent pissing people off but it's like it's like he did so much good work in the past and but this is the theme too of aging gracefully in the yeah. medium like does your work does it is it going to make you more of a, a, a lunatic yeah. or, or or is it going to make you a, a fuller richer person it seems to have both effects on people yeah, how do you I, end I up on the good could, side of that spectrum yeah i don't know how do you avoid becoming a dave sim in terms although that said i mean i i talked with dave sim like a couple of years ago and i found him to be really charming like on the phone you know right. like and i'm still at the point where i haven't i haven't read but. anything of dave sims that actually really like pissed me off i never i've never i didn't finish sarah i read the end of it but i skipped I, what's the book um uh was it what was the one that, that pissed everyone off form and void. void like i haven't gotten to form and void yet and i'm kind of and so many people didn't like it so so i'm kind of tempted to like i'm interested in reading it but have you guys read form and void no I, I I remembered there was the misogynist controversy years ago. Um, I for me, Diane Schutz is a really great friend, and she loves Dave, and that was a, enough of a character reference for me that mm-hmm. that um, if she could look past that, then I certainly should be able to. And he, he's been really cool to me. I, I haven't had any kind of negative experience with him, but I haven't. What is that exactly? Um, what What's the controversy you're talking about? The form and void one? Yeah. Men are the form and women are the voids that take away from the men. Is this in a book? It's like Meek's cut off. Uh, women are chaos and men are destruction. What, what book is this? Form and void. It's what? called Form and Void. Is it a comic book? Yeah, it's, it's part of the service series. It's what? It's, part of, it's one of the service books. It is? Yeah. What What issue was it? Oh, it's one of those, it's one of those phone books. It's right, 200. Last hundred issues, there's a lot of like tracks about just uh, the role that women play in women's lives. So, so it was like one of the bigger chapters. 
And you've read this. You sound like you've read it. So you've actually pondered this. (laughs) I mean, you've read it. You've read it. I think actually I want to redirect this. I could have. I could have swore I read. Redirection time. Yeah, because I I think Dave seems a really important thing to touch on. Um, Because you you, you guys are talking about the community aspect is because we could we could talk about the crazy Dave Sid part. Yeah, I I like where Brandon's going. The the forgotten part. Um, Like. Everyone's had that person that supported them and kind of built them up. Yeah. Hmm. I, um, well, the mic would have to be that role in my life. You were the first professional to support me. Really? No, no. I guess I knew some people actually earlier, um, just like going to comic shows. Like I got some support from people like Steve Weissman. In the back, in, in, back in the day, and Joe Chappetta, who I, I name dropped earlier, was Silly Daddy. So those were early people I met, and David Lasky, who were talking about him. But then I think, like, having someone that was actually had a full blown career around it, it was you definitely, and having someone who I hadn't like come out and like subjected to like my mini comics, basically. Kind of interesting. I feel like I just got led into comics this last couple of years. Before, I guess it would be more attack for me, who kind of. He's he's you know a fair amount older than me, but he kind oh. of more tat. He's uh, he does um, he does uh, Jonah Hex right the now. Spirit. Okay. This, he did the Spirit for all, but but I was when he was doing porn Elf comics, I was his assistant for a little while. And, like you um, had to pose for drawings. Yeah, and no, stuff? I posed for the porn. No, I would I would draw <laughs> I would draw backgrounds sometimes, and mostly it was just that, I mean, I was doing like you know flatting or whatever for Top Cow, and I met him through those guys, and he was the first guy I met that was like into the European stuff and he like knew who Minara was and knew who Mobius was and I just stopped hanging out with the other guys and was like we're gonna hang out all the time and I'm gonna show up at your studio every day and um and he like he, he wasn't getting work in like he I mean started getting out work in Elephant Man like what four or five years ago in his like you know late 30s or something and but but he was like he's a huge to a lot of my friends he's like a huge kind of call him the comic book godfather because he helped me get so much work and got me into doing porn comics which was kind of my my comic book high school or whatever and uh yeah and it's great because me and him were kind of just both of us started getting noticed around the same time and you know it's funny to see him and he's like he's like a newer guy at dc in his 40s or you know almost 40 now redirect us robin <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 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 kind of numb here because i could have swore i read all of uh, all of cerebus uh, um you know that was one of the first books I was in that same time period when I was reintroduced to comics. Cerebus was one of the, you've got to to read this. Yeah. And I remember the really early raw stuff and how it became very sophisticated and uh, Gerard, the background artist, and how they worked together and the 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 Mick and Keith stuff and the... Oh yeah, I love um, those those first those first like three books or so. Groucho stuff. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I love the, the, the pop culture things that would go in there. And just the overall epicness of it, but I don't remember anything blatantly offending me. It's like, even looking at like the characterizations of... um, I always thought the controversy was like in the letter columns. And that's a lot of it too. Just like he had this one thing that was like 10 myths about women you should know before having your breakfast. Something that he published. And it's it's very very outspoken. Um, But like Brandon said, it's kind of... That's overshadowed. I never really got into the letter column stuff, um, and maybe the the comic stuff would have affected me on a, a more mm-hmm. angry basis. But I always felt like you know I'm, I'm reading fiction, and 
these char this character represents this point of view and this character represents this point of view. I never took any anything um, as a why I should like or dislike the creator. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny in a way because if you start to think of characters as their creators and like like it would never put anyone off that Cerebus was a jerk because Cerebus is a jerk. You know, he yeah. just throws babies and yeah. does whatever he can. So it's funny if it's funny if you if you thought of if you were to <clears throat> think of Dave Sim as kind of a, a a Cerebus's incarnation in the real life or that being his character, it's like it kind of makes sense that he would piss people off in one way or another. Yeah. I would I always hesitate to tell people that one of my favorite movies, period, is a clockwork orange. Mm -hmm. And the the fact that the Alex character played by Malcolm McDowell, who's one of the arguably most horrible people ever on film, who he loves violence, he loves raping and hurting people. Right. But to admit that the way he narrates his own story begins to endear you to him and the fact that who he wants to be is his will is taken away from him um, there, and Kubrick's a genius but it's a scary thing to identify with and like a character that is a bad person right. but I think that's part of the thrill of, of fiction in general yeah definitely that it's a safe place to go to a dangerous place yeah it's, it's it's always exciting when you can resonate with something that you don't agree with. Like I was telling Craig about, like like I love Robert Heinlein books, but he's very kind of sometimes he can get, but he's very pro military in a lot of stuff and a lot of things that I don't agree with. But just him through his work, I've really come to to like. And it's nice to have different beliefs with people. It kind of gives me you know, hope for humanity that you can have totally different beliefs in someone and still really right. get along with them. Well, LeBron is a huge like, Heinlein fan too. So. But like um, rap music is another good example. I have to kind of you have to you have to put up with a lot to listen to a lot of rap music that you don't agree with. <laughs> well, rap music too is like uh, we were talking about Henry Miller and uh, that it's it's just a, a caricature of oneself. It's a persona that they put on, and it's it's funny. I think to them, mm -hmm. like I don't I don't think it's I think it's self aware in a way, or it's it's yeah, playing on a costume is, and it's posturing and it's. Yeah, well, uh, that I enjoy seeing another point of view, even if it's an ugly right. point of view that I would never integrate into my own life, or if it's if it, or if it's a lifestyle I'm completely unaware of or haven't experienced. Chester Brown's a great example. Um, it, it, I paying for it uh, um, made me realize how I feel about that, and I'm I I think prostitution should be legal. I've come to that conclusion because of a comic book I read. Oh, really? You were converted by it? I wasn't converted. I never thought about it. Interesting. Because oh. I came from the point of view where I, I very much thought, like, I was already convinced. I was like, yeah, prostitution should be legal. And then reading that, I was kind of like, I, I thought I'd be more, I thought I'd be double convinced, but I wasn't quite there. Yeah, I, I think I I'm never, like Brendan. I, I used to think intellectually that it would be safer if it were legal. But after reading that, I felt, all these, yeah, it felt more... Did. Yeah, more close too. to home or something, and uncomfortable, and yeah, because then you just like start thinking about kind of like women and trapped in these horrible situations, yeah. and and you go to like like Amsterdam or something, the red light district, and you're like, yeah, this doesn't work. Yeah, you know, intellectually, it seems like maybe it could, but well, I it for me it, it, again, it was something I never thought about. Mm -hmm. I it was, you know, uh, I that's exciting that it converted you though. That any any a comic book could change your opinion about something. It didn't change uh, again. It didn't change my opinion. I, I it was it wasn't ever anything that I had an opinion on okay. because it just never you know my 
my experience with prostitution is, you know, in a is movie. It minimal? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, very minimal. One or two times. I've been, I've been to Amsterdam, but I did not indulge. Um, but just, I never really, it was just, you know, like other uh, life experiences that I may not have really thought of. But having read that, I, I definitely came away with, um, I don't see why anybody should, uh, should stop somebody from doing that. I, um, I've long had a, a position on marijuana. I think it's ridiculous that that's illegal. Right. And um, I think it's hilarious with medical mar marijuana that, and especially in Oregon, since I was a kid, it, it's always been, you know, easily accessed and, and not uh, stomped on in any major it's way. It's always been, flag yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty loose. And so I was, when I, it, for it to be legal or illegal, alcohol's legal. I just, it, it's silly that it's illegal. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I used to play a fun game in the, the building I live in. It's a very block long building. And whenever I go check my mail, I play the game of seeing if I can get to the mailbox without smelling pot. <laughs> about a week ago, the, the management switched hands and the new manager slipped a note on Rivers' door that's like, smoking of marijuana won't be you know, allowed in this building. It was just hilarious to me. Like, I cracked <laughs> up. Like, don't you know what this building is? <laughs> like, you know, I think Bob Marley's buried underneath it. <laughs> What was especially unique about paying for it that I found fascinating was um, how specific it was to his personality, mm -hmm. where he wasn't somebody that needed a kind of nurturing, committed love. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a kind of mechanical need for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, the weird thing, though, is like he was paying for it, what, every once every two weeks or something? And I feel like if you can go two weeks, like, why not just go? couple of years you yeah. know like, like that it just point. seems like a very weird rhythm yeah maybe that's just when he could build up the cash yeah yeah well oh. he's, he's a always been a very interesting person for me and when i was first introduced to yummy fur around the same time I, I i also had access to an interview whether it was the comics journal or i don't remember exactly what it was but it while i was experiencing yummy fur for the first time i was also getting his point of view on, on and kind of how he was in a conversation and the things that he wanted to talk about. And that made me almost, uh, that was that it almost made, made me that much more fascinated by his work, the person. So with Chester Brown and with Dave Sim, do you feel like it's important to have a sense of the, the author's persona or that somehow enhances the work? Well, I will say I, I like his fantasy stuff way more than his autobiographical stuff. But um, maybe it's I, more revealing. It, yeah, it's also um, I don't know more revealing. It, for me, it's definitely more interesting and it's more fun. It's more entertaining. But I also uh, I I am I am really fascinated and entertained and interested in anything Chester Brown does. Um, so, so yeah, I have my preferences. But um, I'm, he's an, a unique individual. I don't know if we could ever be pals. I don't know if he would like me. I would like to get in his brain and hang out with him. But uh, um, he's an interesting person. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like surrounding myself with interesting people. And you guys ever read uh, Kendall's Monsters? Yes, what? I love it. Yeah, Kendall's Monsters. Have you read that? No. It's you need to. It's an autobiographical comic about this guy. Um, yeah, we should track it down a copy. It's autobiographical comic book about about him going through getting herpes essentially, 
and he um he it's because i'm most of most of autographical stuff i haven't really clicked with me but this one he uses really really kind of elaborate exciting ways to show this stuff like he'll turn into a monster like when he decides he's not going to have sex he's just it's not a big deal and he's at a park and all these women are walking by and he's leering at them eventually he turns into a wolf and starts howling at them <laughs> it's just really fun way to show this kind of like his feelings i don't know if he liked it Rickard. yeah do i you, love that do, book do you know him i met him afterwards and it was just um he seemed he seemed really cool but i was this i was already so impressed by his work that you know do you do you think it's better to not know the know anything about the creators of any art medium? No, I like knowing the creators. Yeah. I, I like the, or at least having some sort of. I like author photos, for instance. I like having some sort of human connection after reading the story. For I don't years, know why. I tried to avoid that. Uh, like early photographs, I'd always have my head in a turtleneck okay. or, or just the back of my head or something. I I, I didn't want people to know anything about me. Mm-hmm. And um, the more, again, that reclusive nature. But then the more I enjoyed and wanted to get out and and meet people and have that back and forth, the more I realized that I couldn't do that anymore. Especially now, where everybody's got a camera on them at all times and wants their picture taken right. with you. Um, I get more into doing kind of self self effacing pictures, like self portraits. Like I basically draw myself like a bean, like a yellow <laughs> bean. And it's funny, Marion. Uh, Marion will always bug me and she's like that you know you don't look like that and i'm like no i'm drawing my soul <laughs> <laughs> i i find it almost impossible to not make a face when my picture's getting taken uh-huh. it's just i just can't take it seriously and i'm a big goofball anyway but um this feels okay i i, I like having a conversation with you guys and uh, but yeah it's such a weird thing i i i i, I like steve Ditko, for instance i've only ever seen one photograph of that man ever and there's something appealing to me about that, that the, the mystery. Thomas Pinchon. But also, the more I learn about Steve Ditko, the less I like him. And um, so uh, there is that. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I can't say that I like his work any less. It's just I've heard, I, I've heard s- certain stories of cruelty that, mm. that, you know, I don't like hearing stuff like that. Right. And... Um, of all the people I've ever asked to to do a madman piece for me, he's the only person that ever said no. Mm. <laughs> and he just was just just flat out, you know, period, the end. What would I get out of that? I'm that's actually what he said. I don't think I would what could I possibly get out of drawing your character? Right, yeah. Well it it's like I respect his honesty. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's hard those those rough run ins, like I used to be a huge Arthur Adams fan and I had a I, I met him when I was fifteen at a convention and it was so and I could and now I look back and I know he was just burnt out or anything, but I had my art and I was so excited to see him. And he just like looks through it and he goes, "Work on your anatomy, work on your perspective." And the guy next to him goes, "His anatomy and perspective seems okay." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." <laughs> and I was just so brokenhearted. Oh. And I think about that a lot when I'm at conventions. Like, pay attention to this guy's artwork who's showing it to me. But you uh, have, have no you, time to pay attention. Have you, to that have you had any other experiences with art? No, that, those are that's my only interaction. Oh, that's true. He's one of the funniest, friendliest guys you'll ever know. So it's unfortunate you had that experience because... Like Paul Pope, I avoided meeting for years because I didn't want to wait in line at a convention. And I eventually got introduced to him up at the Vertigo offices and I was awkward in that experience anyway. Or like like Mobius, I'm terrified to meet because it's like he's such an important deal to my art. I wouldn't want to like have some, you know, you meet him on a bad day or, you know. You you know who I was afraid of having that experience with? Uh, Adam West, the Batman, (laughs) the TV Batman. Right. For he'd be at the same shows, and I mean, 
my child, I come home from school and I'd watch the monkey, Star Trek, Batman, Twilight Zone. Right. That was, you know, run home from school and those TV shows would come on. And to, to have him be mean to me would have destroyed me. Right. So I sent Laura to get stuff signed. Check if he's a jerk. Yeah. And finally, uh, uh, at the last New York show we were at, there he was and there was only like there wasn't much of a line or anything and it was like I'm gonna do it and he was really cool to me so um, but yeah it, I, I I don't know if it's luck again but I've I, I've had almost complete wonderful experiences meeting my heroes <laughs> oh boy Mobius was really cool you know I was at a San Diego comic-con this last year and I was going with my girlfriend who's an editor at Dark Horse mm -hmm. and uh, she works a lot in the Hollywood world. So this is a, one of these times where I went to comics, and the, San Diego's perfect for this, where I went to comics as a plus one, basically. Like, no one really cares about comic books at San Diego Comic-Con. They're there for the Hollywood world, and we would go to these after parties that were like, right. like actors and famous people and celebrities. It was all, you know, tedious to get through the door, and it was... Wasn't interesting, but we went to this big Hollywood party where someone's like, "That's Ben Edlin over there," and I so like beeline through all these celebrities to get to Ben Edlin because I am a super fanboy. Mm -hmm. Like The Tick was one of those, like totally the huge major influences too. When but I she was like draw anymore. junior high, and that's the first thing I went up to and told them. I was <laughs> like, "You gotta draw again. Who cares about producing Hollywood things?" Like, so um, <laughs> like so I don't know. But then Jim Woodring, I've seen at things, and I haven't gone out of my way to introduce himself. I'm gonna introduce myself, even though I'm a huge fan. But I think it was just the fact that I was at this awkward party where there was a person that I really wanted to meet. Hmm. You know, like a cute girl across the room. Oh, Ben Edlin. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I like him. He's a nice guy. Yeah. But he should be making comics. Yeah, it is yeah, always. I agree. Like, yeah, don't waste time in Hollywood. Yeah, that, that's I, I remember um, with during the the legend days, Frank Miller um, had a silver platter handed to him to make a Sin City movie, uh, and everything was right there for him. And for me, I was like, at that time in my life, that was the be all end all to make movies. And um, this really stuck with me. It was like I'm doing what I want to do. You know, I don't. I don't need the money. I don't need the that what I'm. I love then doing. Then later is, he slipped up and got sucked in. What changed for him? Oh no, that's a. He just got. I don't. I don't think he it. did. Okay. That was a, the circumstances were different, but I love the fact that that he just wanted to make comic books. And this was one in his when just every Sin City story. He was just building this amazing world with Sin City, Sin City, and but it was. Uh, Rodriguez pretty much just filmed the first sequence from Sin City and showed it to him, mm -hmm. and and so it was just a matter of Frank going okay, okay. Um, and with with Robert Rodriguez everything is just completely we'll do it the way you want it done. He's got his own uh, studio, his all his facilities in, in uh, Austin, and that's something that Frank likes. There was nobody telling him this or that will make it the way you want to so that's a completely different circumstance that was m years later that it actually happened but I, I I still just that changed my point of view I realized I'm doing what I want to do I don't want to 
get in that mix and, and try struggle so hard to get it done the way I want and then just have it not. Mm-hmm. And where with comics, it's immediate. It's, it's yeah. instant. If, if this idea you had about he's eating, stand up, it's a giant, and he was eating them. You could do that like right now. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to pitch it in an office and, and, you know, have your agent meet with this person. Yeah. It, it's, there it is. I was really surprised because I've worked a little bit in animation and a little bit on movie stuff, and it's just, I hate it. Like, it's not, it, it, you'd think it would be the same as comics, but it's, like, there's something about, like, the kind of specific storytelling style of comics that I really, really love. And, like, like storyboard work, it's just, like, I would stop drawing if I, was, if I had oh, to yeah, do storyboards for a living. I get, I get envy, though, at times of, like, um, that their process like I'll watch DVD extras and it looks so much like so much fun and so much camaraderie uh, like I visited Leica the animation studio in Portland a few times and and there's so much talent there and right. everybody's bustling about and I'm like oh yeah. you know working alone in your studio all day I get these bursts of envy for that lifestyle and then I realize that's that's not really what it's like most it. of it's headaches and most of it's sitting around waiting and I've certainly been like on music video shoots where like mm-hmm. You spend so many hours, literally, and you know, it's just like lo-fi um, production, but you're doing nothing, and there's so right. much money yeah. and resources and things that have to be constructed. And you're like, all this stuff, all this that's poured into like something that we can do quite easily Did with you just pen and paper. No, he talked about how uh, he got hired by Disney, or I think it was Disney, and he and he went in there, and he was so he was like, all right, now I'm in the big leagues. This is a yeah. big thing, and then a bunch of people ran out for his autograph, and he was like, shit, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get envy and I especially um, I want I, I, I desire the kind of success that gives me freedom to where if it's if if you have the where you don't have to worry about money you don't have to worry about marketing yourself that the name recognition will is all there is you know mm-hmm. it's there it is so I get that but um, like when Mad Men was originally optioned for a film with Universal, they'd fly me down. They'd even send a limo to the house to take me to the airport. You know, I, my mom came for a visit and asked the limo driver if, hey, can we, can you come back and take, you know, I wanted my mom to see this spoilage, this red carpet right. that was, that was happening. And, and, uh, but nothing ever got done. They'd fly me down. They'd put me in a hotel and we'd have meetings. They'd, they'd ask what I wanted for lunch and we'd, you know, let's do lunch. Yeah, and, they, and they'd order lunch in, and and I get the appeal of it. It's it is very seductive, but nothing is really happening. Right, it stops being about the work, and it starts being about you know the Thai food in the limo. I imagine. Yeah, and then with yeah, it's about the catering ultimately. But right. there, but you, there are these people that have this uh, success and this liberty to do things the way they want well like yeah it seems like a director has pretty good gig on a movie if if they've been successful enough to have that license they uh but i look at like somewhere like leica and it seems so dynamic to me but then i realized if i actually worked there i may i would only be in one department maybe i'd be a character designer and i don't want that i want to be character designer set designer you know yeah. the writer the actor i want to do all those things that the comics allows you like, i'm jealous yeah. of the pixar guys every every pixar guy knows is just loves it it go to work on a ball pit every day <laughs> yeah. they they, they I've, I've yeah no, i've never got the sense that it's a grind there i've got the sense that it's a playful 
very you know where they encourage your imagination and and just do what you do best and and then they take their time to put all the pieces together and make it work and the, the emphasis on story um, so I mean I'm not down on the whole Hollywood thing or, yeah, I mean, I'm or sure it works for something like Pixar mass seems market. like like even Pixar it seems fantastic but then when I watch their movies I'm like it's I don't feel like it's made for me it doesn't like I feel like it's it just doesn't click with me it's 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 uh, I don't know I I like I like I like the idea of kind of weird accidents, and I wonder if that kind of studio doesn't allow for weird accidents. Like they're like sitting around and reworking the story and, and playing it in front of audiences, being does this work with you guys? Where it's like the great thing about comics is I can just be like, I'm just draw you know a hamster with a jetpack in the background, and I don't have to check with anyone. You know, like you I think saying. one of the things that Pixar does is I mean they've got the 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 theater right in their own facilities, mm-hmm. and I think their test audiences are their own guys. You know, they're not they're not uh, they're not going to the executives and right. and fitting it into a certain formula. In fact, one of the things I admire about Pixar is how unformulaic their films are. When I first heard about Finding Nemo, I thought that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm, I don't want to watch a movie about a fish. Right. You know, but the storytelling is there. Or Up, you know, a story about an old man. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet it had one of the most brilliant slices of storytelling I've ever seen in any fo- film. I'm sure I haven't seen any of those. I just oh, well, if you yeah. see Up, there's a sequence up. where you see the entire marriage of this man and woman that can't have a child. And it's one of the most moving things you'll ever see. It's uh, it's like 10 minutes or something. Yeah, and wordless. Yeah, but, so, pantomime. So, that, I mean, there, there are geniuses at work there, and, but, but knowing some of the people that work there, they love it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a place they want to go. You know, I, I I don't have that experience where I've looked forward to going to my workplace, right. except here. Mm-hmm. You know, this. I, so, yeah, I I don't I don't know where this started, but but just uh, success or relative success. Um, I've felt successful ever since I quit my previous job. Right. And every month that the bills get paid and I still get to do what I want to do, I feel successful. Yeah. You know, so. I almost feel like it's a harder thing to um, to balance surviving as an artist and do good art, too. It's just like a totally different handle. Because I was, I, I used to do this thing where I realized that when I was doing um, my own comics, I was really proud of them. But I started to realize the more that somebody was paying, and I don't know if this is true anymore, but, but back in New York, like the more someone was paying me, the crappier the work would be. So I'd be like, oh, I got a great job to do. And it's, you know, it's about, you know, some, you know, it's just something totally uninteresting. It's, you know, it's an ironing comic I get to do where they're paying me $8,000 a page or something. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't want to do this at all, but it'll fund my work that I actually care about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, try, I try to find, again, find something to love about anything I'm doing. I, uh, when I do a commission, I always look for a hook. Yeah. Um, because it was always hard for me to do something that somebody else was telling me to do. Mm-hmm. I'm just a jerk that way. <laughs> I don't like being told what to do. Yeah. So I've disciplined myself to what can I get from this that I'm going to enjoy out of it, and then I that's what I. My quote I like to throw around more than anything is just I like to say that the, the my job is not is never drawing comics. The job is like getting excited about drawing comics and kind oh, of finding a way to, to get into it. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 the kick. And and for me, it's how do I stay excited and like what we were talking about earlier, just I'm constantly looking, I'm either looking for new stuff to get excited about or I dig back into the stuff that always gets me excited. Yeah, it's a balance between those two. Yeah. Yeah, whenever I'm like feeling really like 
burnt out and interested in comics. I usually just go back. I, I have to like act like a fourteen year old again, and I'm like, I'm gonna dig out all my dirty pear and apple seed comics and just redraw panels, and and it gets me excited again. It works every time. Around on the ground, he'll be found when you're around. 